Some of this history makes for uncomfortable listening. What you're about to listen to comes from a different time and world. In the words of the late Ngāti Toa Aura, Uncle Iwi Nikusen, Nā, ko te ao Māori tērā, tā rātou mahi he patu tangata, kai tangata, muru taonga, muru whenua, ko te ao Māori tēnā, me o Ngātikanga. Well, that's the traditional Māori world. What they did was kill people, eat people, forcibly take possessions and land, even though it's unpleasant. That's the traditional Māori world and its customs. Taroparaha is widely considered to be among the greatest of the tribal leaders of the 19th century. He's remembered as a warrior. He was gifted with the ability to strategize, to bring about how his vision was going to unfold. And his ability to come up with tricks that might have seemed to be breaking Tikanga protocol but resulted in success. He led his people over four decades, from traditional times when Pākehā were unknown to Ngāti Toa, through to some of the early flashpoints of colonisation, when the ink was barely dry on the Treaty of Waitangi. He's probably a politician first. <laughs> a man that became a living legend in his own lifetime. He had the smarts, he could retain a lot of information about who's who and what matters to them. But he was universally respected, if not even revered, and at times reviled by his peers. He was a winner. He was decisive. He was just relentless. And on top of that, he had lashings of good luck. <laughs> and of course, his most widely known legacy is the haka, kamate. <laughs> All of this is detailed by his son, Tamihana, in a manuscript from the 1860s. That text, He Pukapuka Tātaku i Ngā Mahi Ataruparaha Nui, was translated and edited by me and published in 2020. In this podcast, we'll bring Tamihana's manuscript about his father to life. And we'll go beyond its pages, learning more about the great Rangatira Taroparaha in his times through interviews with his descendants and tribal historians. He was more determined, he had a vision and more fixed on his opportunities than any other. As well as descendants of Iwi who were his enemies 200 years ago. Yeah, he was a monster. That view is still strongly held by many in the whanau. Kia mihia, kia tangihia ngā mano tini ko mene ki ngā Hawaiki katoa. Rātou te te tūtanga o te poehu. Haere, haere, haere atu rā. Ka hurike a tātou ngā kanohi ora. Tēnā tātou katoa. He uri tēnei no Ngāti toa, no Ngāti raukawa, me kaitahu, mihi kau atu ana ki a koutou. Nau mai ki tēnei hoataka mo tōku tūpuna. My name is Ross Kalman, and this is Te Rauparaha, Kei Wariwari. Wari.
This episode is a prologue, an introduction. Before we dive into Te Rauparaha's story, which starts in episode 1, it's important to set the scene, and give you a little bit of background, how the original manuscript and my own translation of it came to be. We're going to kick off at the University of Canterbury in the early 90s. I was there studying English, and I'd just recently found out from my grandmother that I was Ngāti Toa and a descendant of Te Rauparaha. I remember thinking that I wanted to get to know my ancestor, but how? So I was in the university library, looking at these shelves filled with big bound volumes, all these photocopies of Māori manuscripts. I didn't know much Māori language at that time, so I'm not sure what I expected to learn. But purely by chance, I came across this large volume that was called The Life of Te Rauparaha. I took it down from the shelf and opened it up, and there was page after page of beautiful handwriting in Te Reo Māori. The thing for me about this manuscript was that it was written by someone who knew Te Rauparaha personally and understood Te Ao Tawhito, the old Māori world. This is it, I thought. This is how I was going to get close to my tūpuna. I decided there and then that one day, when I had sufficient mastery of te reo, I would read and understand this manuscript about my famous tūpuna. Here's what I knew about Te Rauparaha at that time. I knew he was a famous leader, but I also knew he was responsible for a whole lot of people being killed in many parts of the country, including where I was living at the time, Ōtautahi. Should I be proud or ashamed of being his descendant? I had no idea of the true scope of Te Rauparaha's influence on Aotearoa. Looking at a photo of Tamihana, Taroparaha's son, he's every inch the 19th century gentleman, in a velvet jacket, flowers on his lapel, fob chain in his waistcoat, a ribbon at his throat and a top hat on his knee. This, this amazes me, this photo. Oh, we can look at the back. Pōneke, 21st of July, 1875. By the 1870s, he's got a nearly white mutton-chops beard, but still has a full head of shiny hair. He's in his 50s, but he looks like quite an old man. Before his death, Tamihana appointed his nephew, Hemi Wārahi, as heir to his estate. I'm thinking of Tarobra. This is one of Hemi's descendants. That painting over there was painted by my great-grandmother in Ōtaki in 1908. My great-grandmother painted mm. that. This is Parapi Walker. We're at his house, looking at a painting of Tarauparaha in traditional dress, painted by Parapi's great-great-grandmother over a hundred years ago. She'd probably be working off Bainbridge by the look of that. Russell, no. His poses are like the one where he's wearing the uniform, eh? It is. Oh, yeah, but might have put a different kākaru on him. Yeah, yeah. yeah. She, she replaced the Māori kākaru on him, yeah. Parapi is a broadcaster and te reo Māori activist. I met him when I was in my 20s studying te reo Māori at Te Wānanga o Raukawa. He was this quite young Pākehā-looking fella who spoke te reo Māori like a kaumātua. Like me, he wasn't brought up speaking te reo Māori. In fact, he says his first language was Cockney. Come on, Dad, you want to buy me a new green racing car? Although unlike me, he knew all about his whakapapa from a young age. 
Well, I was raised in the whānau with one Māori grandmother who was a fixture in my life, uh, visiting on Sundays, carrying a kete, bringing a kōrero, talking about those connections. Her elders, female elders, were all connected to, and in many cases married to Tarapara. And then her own grandfather, he was the son of Tamihana Tarapara's half-sister, and became his heir, and so he was talked about often in my childhood. Our family had sayings like, that one looks like Tarupara, uh, although we didn't have a blood connection, as in your case you do. Uh, they would comment on the shape of your nose. <laughs> I remember one time crying when they told me that it had a certain kind of a look as a child. But uh, that influence made me cut past I think nearly everything negative in the world about perceptions of things Māori. I only ever had a perception of a Māori heart as being fully alive, fully nurturing and loving. And once I got going on the reo and reconnected with the marae, which I hadn't really grown up with, I had a sense of placing my feet fairly surely in that world, despite being fair of skin. When I began to think seriously about translating Tamihana's pukapuka, I knew I'd need a mentor, someone to bounce Fakaro off, and I immediately thought of Piripi. I thought I was going to talk you out of it. <laughs> I shook my head. I sort of remember the look on your face. It was kind of like I was asking a bigger job than what... Well, it was obviously a bigger deal to you than what I thought it was. But you, then you said, for you, Ross, yes. Probably the look on my face. So I had the sense <laughs> that it was going to take some years of working on it to do it well, to walk all the way through, and then backwards and forwards, and then backwards and forwards. But Pitapi agreed, and together we worked our way through the manuscript, sending emails backwards and forwards and it did take several years. But this collaboration helped me to arrive at a translation that was quite different from previous translations. We do know that there were some very significant mistranslations of the manuscript, and they had inflamed me, and I could see that what you were proposing was a way to restore the original manuscript, and hopefully we could do some restoration to the um, damage created by the mistranslations that appeared over a long period was handled by so many different people over such a period of time and every one of them got it horribly wrong for different reasons and in different ways. And it's kind of like infected our whole fear of history of Te Rauparaha, of Ngāti Toa and Tamihana. It's, it's, it's had quite a negative impact. It makes our ancestors look like fools. Before we jump into some of those dodgy translations and the impacts they've had on the ways we think and talk about Tarauparaha and his son today, let's look at how and why this manuscript was written in the first place, or what we know about it anyway. Tamihana's account of his father's life was probably written between about 1866 and 1869. His original manuscript is part of the George Grey collection. In case you don't know, Grey was one of New Zealand's first British governors. It's a little bizarre to think of Grey, an agent of the original colonial government, as the saviour of so much of our Māori culture and heritage. 
but Gray's collection of te reo Māori material, waiata, letters and manuscripts like tamihana's, have been so valuable to historians and language researchers like me. These texts give us a window into te ao tawhito, the old world, that might not exist if Gray wasn't so driven to collect this material. There is quite a bit of material concerning Gray's intent and motive. This is Robert Eruera, librarian and kaitiaki of the Māori collection at Auckland Library, which includes Tummy Hunter's manuscript. He was fully aware of the changes that colonisation will bring. He states it very clearly in some of his earlier writings that it will never be the same. So he wanted to capture it. He didn't only capture Māori, he has all the earliest publications of um, so many other Indigenous peoples from throughout the Pacific and Africa and that. George Gray obviously identified Te Rauparaha as a key person to build a relationship with, uh, to kind of stamp his, well, George Gray's mana on this new colony and that Te Rauparaha was going to be very important in that. Yeah, so important that he ended up kidnapping him. <laughs> That's right. We're not going to hear that story just now, but it's true that towards the end of his life, Taroparaha was arrested and held on a ship by Grey. And Grey wrote a lot of Taroparaha's all down. But then it was all lost in a big fire at Government House. He describes him and his wife Elizabeth standing out there just in their dressing gowns and and everything else had gone. And that's why I linked it to this. This is one theory about why Tummy Hunter wrote this poka poka about his father. Gray asked Tummy Hunter to write it after Te Rauparaha's was lost in the fire. This is to replace that that was lost. But there could be other explanations. He poka poka tātaku was written around 20 years after Te Rauparaha died, and these were tumultuous times. Māori had lost a lot of land and were going through the land court process to prove their rights to the land that remained. Things in Aotearoa were changing really quickly. Tamihana was pro-Pākehā, he was Christian, but even for him this might have felt like too much, too fast. Viewed through that lens, the manuscript might have been a way for Tamihana to reassert his birthright through being Te Rauparaha's son. But whatever the motives, Tamihana did write this manuscript. And thank goodness he did. As Pirapi Walker puts it, This is one of the great legacies from that generation to all generations in the future. It's the stories told from within the Māori world by a Māori heart and in the most beautiful, subtle, elegant and classical language. Ngāti tōko mātua tā matu rei echoes Pirapi's sentiments, saying that We of Ngāti tōa are very fortunate that some of our leaders learned to read and write and left us these treasures. So, a bit about those previous attempts at translating Tamihana's manuscript. As early as 1872, W.T.L. Travers, a lawyer, politician and scientist, drew information from the manuscript for lectures he was giving on the life of Te Rauparaha. 
which he went on to publish in book form. But his slant on Tamihana's words is of its day. Sensational, patronising and frankly racist. Then, in 1890, volume 6 of The Ancient History of the Māori by John White used long extracts from Travers, crediting Tamihana for passages that were blatantly incorrect. This did some long-lasting damage to Tamihana's reputation. Then, while World War I was just kicking off, a guy named George Graham gave it a go. We've just rediscovered it. Oh, really? Yes. Oh. George Graham did a slightly better job than the others. His was the first attempt at a full translation. Geo, as he's called by the librarians, was a Pākehā accountant who married a wahine Māori and had a passion for Māori history. It's assumed that his wife helped him with his translations. Graham's translation of Tamihana's manuscript will go on to become the one that most people refer to over the next hundred years. Geo Graham's quite interesting in the sense of approaching John Barr, who was the chief librarian at the time. As anyone who's used archives will know, there are always hoops you need to jump through, and that was true even in 1914. Geo Graham said, oh, I know you won't give me the original to take home to, you know, work on. This is 1914, so no photocopiers. So it was typed up. It seems they hired somebody to do that. Somebody called Miss Jones. Excellent job concerning the period of time. She must have known Māori to some degree. Yeah, so Miss Jones, although she's, you know, she's really done a valiant effort she introduces a lot of errors into the typescript and George Graham's translation is two steps removed from the original. It's one of the reasons why Tommy Hunter's manuscript probably sat unpublished for another hundred years because people who have read George Graham's translation kind of got the impression that Tommy Hunter's manuscript was not very good quality and was in places the ravings of someone who had a screw loose because it didn't make complete sense. The library planned to publish George Graham's translation in 1923, but they got the advice of Apirana Ngata, who very diplomatically said that, Mr Graham's translation is free and in some places not altogether correct. So, you know, there it stopped. But that George Graham translation was used as the basis of a 1980 book. Maybe your grandparents have it somewhere on their shelves, or you've seen it in op shops. It's got a caricature of Taroparaha on the cover, knife through his ear, crudely drawn moko, tongue stuck out. If you find it, please hide it. Yeah, we don't always nail it. To be fair, even fluent speakers of the realm might not quite know how to tackle a manuscript as old as this. In terms of the language, it's like comparing Shakespeare with Shortland Street. You're entering into an older world, and then also there are specialised areas in that world, ways of doing and being. Sometimes of the jokes, in the end, you manage to get into his humour code, which I don't think others have done before. But you were interested enough in him to figure out when he was telling jokes. My work translating this manuscript started in 2014, and thankfully, I had guidance from Pitapi. One of the rich things that you were able to do was, by going through the whole 120 pages, 
you discovered idioms which haven't been spoken probably for 10 generations, and by seeing how they cropped up, you were able through detective work to actually deduce by triangulation the exact meaning of those idioms. I didn't know this at the time, but Parapi himself had spent months indexing Tamihana's manuscript way back in 1980, when he was in his early 20s. Microreal 375. Tamihana's History of the Life of the Rebraha. That's my handwriting in 1980. This is me transcribing the microphone. Off the microfilm. But it's a lot of mahi, eh? He'd come across a copy of the manuscript at the Turnbull Library when he was studying for his BA in Māori. I saw this manuscript on the shelf. I opened it up. I think what I was having here was the exact same wave of feelings that you had. It's powerful, eh? Mm. A few years later, when Piripi became a tutor at the Wānanga, he used the manuscript as a resource for students. I thought, they've got to be using this. We've got to be using our own now. He means using sources written in the Ngāti Tōa and Ngāti Raukawa dialects. And I started to produce this language textbook. And this is where the old people first got a hold of the fact I was bringing this manuscript back to Nokawa. And, and they said, the Komato said, we want to vet it. Yeah. We want to have a look at the battles, the accounts of Utu. Here's the other tricky part about transcribing and publishing a manuscript like this. Taroparaha is an incredibly complex character. To some, he's a hero, to others a monster. Whoever set about translating it would need to take great care. And they knew what was in this manuscript. They knew it would all be in there. That's the other thing about Tamiana we should say, actually. Although he was Christianised, he didn't hold back with the manuscript. Are you going to get someone saying that? (laughs) Yeah. You just said it. A lot of the manuscript is about murders, the curses that were uttered, the battles that followed, how many men, women and children were killed, and how many were taken captive. It's heavy stuff, and still really sensitive, even today. I I know that some of them knew it. I know Iwi Kartan knew it. He knew the manuscript. Parapi's talking about the late Ngāti Tōa Ngāti Raukawa Rangatira Iwi Kartan Nicholson, known to most people as Uncle Iwi. He also used to say to us, Tarobraha is a name you cannot take around Manai freely as you move about the country. That is a warning. So I heard that as a young person. Because of concerns like this, the scenes that were approved for Parapi to use were very PG. They eliminated all of the battles. And they approved these four passages in there. Trading at Cloudy Bay, Grody Bay. Catching ducks for the great feast, the competitive feast between Nokawa and Kaitotoa in the Wairau with the nets. Putangi tangi. The storm at sea on Nokawa. And then Tarupraha, as a very, very good young man, obediently obeying the instruction to go and get water. Parapi's handmade resources look kind of like a kid's book because, as well as being an incredible speaker of te reo Māori, Parapi was also a pretty talented illustrator, just like his great-great-grandmother. Yeah, and you can see I'm still quite a young man because I'm still drawing all the other young men as rather muscular, you know, sort of superhero... types in the illustrations. I was allowed a war canoe, 
They let me have one musket. <laughs> a tahipala. A tahipala, maybe it's a single shot. And I, I respected it. I would bow my head to the seniority of those making the decisions when I was a young person. And they explicitly said, because we've got Mupoko and Ngaitahu young people among us, a huge amount of Mokopuna who've got dual heritage. If you don't know already, you'll find out later why Taroparaha's story might be more sensitive or upsetting to Ngaitahu and Muaupoko descendants. We don't want anyone getting hurt when they hear about terrible things being done to their tupuna or also done by their tupuna. You know, it's like any post-war world. How do the groups move on and then feel good about one another? And one way to do that is not to mention things that happened in the wartime and not to pass them on to the young. And that's the track that the Komatu were on quite explicitly. I can understand the Komatua's reasoning from that time, especially as many of the students were second chance learners and may have been having their first experiences of Māori language and culture. But the George Graham and John White versions were already out there, misrepresenting Tamihana's words and intentions. And there is so much richness in this manuscript in terms of its language and its insights into our tūpuna's lives. And it's with those injunctions, Russ, that you and I first came back to the dream of bringing the material fully into the light of the modern publishing world and creating a book and creating a history for everybody to read. Before I published the book, Parupi advised me to seek the blessing of a committee of Ngāti Tō Komātua. I presented my translation of the first part of the manuscript, talked about the poor versions that were already out there, and how Tamihana's reputation had suffered as a result. I talked about doing justice to the manuscript and to Tamihana, and that ultimately my book would enhance the mana of Ngāti Tōa. When I had finished speaking, there was silence. It was a nerve-shredding ten seconds or so. But they agreed, including Uncle Iwi, who said that I should publish every word that Tamihana wrote. Every word. So I did. Every word written by Tamihana is in the book. We won't get through all of it in this podcast, but we will cover a lot of ground. One of the tricky parts of telling this kind of story, and one of the reasons there's been reluctance in the past, is that we tend to judge historical events through a modern lens. One of the kaumātua who supported my work on this pokapoka was Dr. Taku Parai, Pautikanga Whangāti Tōa, and himself a direct descendant of Te Rauparaha. I do remember an auntie saying to me, she remembers a primary school, she, they were asked if they knew of anyone that they feel proud of and has a real strong, significant history. And she got up and said, my tūpuna. Well, who was he? Te And she was made to sit in the classroom facing the wall. I think it was pulled upon her that, how dare you raise such a name in my classroom? Nothing but a savage, you know, nothing but a cannibal. Has no part in terms of the history of this country. But Te Rauparaha is an incredibly important part of Aotearoa's history. 
We can't just dismiss his story because parts of it seem brutal to us today. I just accept that that's how life was for a tūpuna. This is Ngāti Tor historian Machu Baker, and we'll meet him properly in the next episode. But here's some useful whakaaro about this stuff. But not only was it like that for our tūpuna, life has been like that for most of human history. Across all cultures. So it's only in the last couple of hundred years that it's really started to change. And um, and so once you accept that and don't overlay modern Judeo-Christian values on top of it as, you know, as part of a, a, a values judgment process, then it's much easier to accept that life was difficult and brutal and you had to fight for your place in it. In order to properly understand Te Rauparaha, or at least come close, we need to view him through the lens of Te Tafito, the ancient Māori world. I think it's best to think of the cultures as being almost completely different. Pirapi Walker again. So Māori cultural concepts are very different. Let's quickly look at a couple of examples. First, war. Our tūpuna were constantly preoccupied with war, preparing for it, waging it, and looking for ways to end it. I think warfare is a universal. You know, if you go back and look at all societies throughout the world, warfare has its own track. And the grounds for it in most cultures are embedded in inherited grievance, often. And in, in, in Māori terms, grievance had to be repaid fully. He's talking about utu, which is a kupu that has been misinterpreted and oversimplified with time. As Uncle Taku explains... Man, it was eye for an eye, no matter how long it took, or what generation, you know, achieved that utu. It was a tikoma that had to be adhered to. But utu doesn't just mean revenge. It can be anything given in exchange. Like, if a gift was given, then a return gift would be expected. This is also a form of utu. The justice system was based on that. You had the hala, the crime against you, which led to the utu, which led to the state of air, things being restored to equilibrium, and often had to be a measure of the earlier hara. If your hapu or iwi was on the receiving end of a hara, or wrongdoing, this weighed on the whole group, and the group's focus would become about attaining utu, in order to bring everything back into a state of equilibrium, or air. There was a spiritual dimension to this, so to be wronged against placed a weight on the soul. But also, utu was about survival. To let an imbalance remain without writing it was to risk catastrophe. So in the immediate period prior to colonisation, there was a lot of killing and counter-killing, tit for tat. And yes, cannibalism, kaitangata, was a part of the culture. This was a ritual that was thought to destroy an enemy's mana and enhance one's own. Taking enemies captive and effectively making them into taurekareka or slaves also destroyed their mana and standing. The group who captured the slaves also benefited from their labour. Often, over time, slaves became integrated into families and were no longer considered to be slaves. I accept that it might be difficult for some to understand that that was normal life and that life was brutal, sometimes short, and nothing was promised. 
you made it for yourself and you made it standing beside your brothers and your sisters, your fathers and your uncles and your aunties. And you did so in the promise that you'd have something meaningful to pass on to your children and your grandchildren. The original copy of Tamihana's manuscript is held in Auckland Central Library's special collections room. My producer and I have flown up to have a look at it and speak to one of its kaitiaki, who you've already heard a little from, Robert Erewera. Mona Lisa's got nothing on me. <laughs> <laughs> it's an artwork in itself, eh? It's irreplaceable. The book is propped up on a special beanbag cushion to protect its spine. Kind of a cradle to hold it, so, you know... Just like us old people, you need a walker. <laughs> this taonga is about 150 years old, and I'm almost scared to touch it. Oh, I'll let you, can you open it up? Sorry, I don't want to do a bad, a bad open. <laughs> What's striking too is our library stamp. <laughs> <laughs> That's always been a bit annoying to me. There's library stamps all over the show. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Pat, we don't do that anymore, so um, that happened before I was here. Robert has looked after the Māori collections here for over 20 years. This manuscript is extraordinary because of the quality of, of how it's encased as a volume, and it's beautifully written, as you know, Ross. The book is beautifully preserved, and it's high-quality stationery, cloth cover, Leather binding, a marbled inside cover, 63 leaves with line after line of neat handwriting. And these are thick pages, so this is not a cheap volume. All in te reo Māori. And it's not just prose, we can see waiata, karakia, a map. And he's getting tired too, you can see he's getting tired. It's wonderful just to see the actual manuscript and you see, you can just imagine that that scratch, scratch, scratch as he... As he wrote it all out. I think he needed to go to sleep. I remember meeting Robert Eroeta for the first time and the questioning from him. I put him through a kind of scrutiny. Are you meant to be doing this? Do you have the approval of, you know, the Tōrangatira? I am quite protective of the Tonga because as kaitiaki, these are other people's Tonga, other hapu, other whānau Tonga. So um, that's not in my job description. <laughs> that's in my way to it. <laughs> but I was glad when uh, Ross came forward and the trip that Ross took in, in the sense of his journey and the connection back to his tupuna and his whole family there, you know, in the sense of it, to his real, uh, to his people. It's extraordinary. So this, this volume took him there. And Tonga to me has always been like that. It takes you on the journey. When I first saw this manuscript, yeah, it felt really emotional. Up until that point, I had always just seen photocopies and nothing can convey the power of the original. Yeah, to see the actual book, and as you open it up and you see the ink that has been scratched into the page by my uncle, generations back, just think about him sitting in his study night after night, 
making a good copy into this book. And I think the opening line where he says, Kei wari wari, I think to me that is his whole motivation. He didn't want this all to be forgotten. Even though writing had only been in Aotearoa for maybe one generation, I think they knew that setting something down and writing like this would outlast an individual's life. That they may be silenced, but that the all could live on. Coming up in Te Rauparaha, Kei Wari Wari. He wasn't the cutest looking baby. If you effectively have the wiping out of a generation of men. But he was prepared to cut his own track. Clearly Parker are visiting this part of the country. If you were to come here, you might have good access to them. Do I stay behind and die? Or do I make a dash and come back and seek revenge on these people? Walker just covered the bay. The odds were wildly against them. If Taro steps foot in the Waipaunamu, he will crush his head with a paturaruhi. Why they came to Kaipoi carrying Aitau prisoners is beyond me. The Elizabeth was our Trojan horse. The guns meant a lot of people get killed. You know, the bodies were piling up. It would have been tense for him. Those are big calls, heavy calls. This series was made possible with funding from Manutu Taonga, Ministry for Culture and Heritage. It was researched, co-written and hosted by me, Ross Kalman. Kirsten Johnstone from Popsock Media produced, edited and sound designed the series. Music is by Mukultron, Ariana Tikal, Alistair Fraser and Phil Boniface. Tor Waka is the voice of Tamihana. Melody Thomas of Popsock Media was our script advisor. Imogene Kelly, Sinead Overby and David Green from Manitou Taonga provided production support and historical checks. Narration was recorded by Phil Brownlee and the sound mix is by Anaru Dalziel. I'm grateful to all of our kaikōrero who have so generously shared their knowledge, their wisdom and their compassion. Dini te mihi aroha kia koutou katoa. Podua te pau, tukituki o te pau Whakarohi o ngā pekerangi, ngā tūkupu, ngā tokoru O tēnei tangata, o tēnei pūrākau, o enei tūpuna Kiwia, winiwini, kiwia, wana wana Hare atu te haukino, te hauhuna, te haukai taua He toka tumoana, haramai te toki Haumie, huie, tāhi kie Tāhi kie